Welcome to the Magician and the Fool podcast. This is episode number 27. My name is Dominic and my co-host's name is Janice. Today we had the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Janes. She is an independent researcher with a particular interest in dream culture in the ancient world. And among other things, she runs dream incubation workshops in the UK. She runs a lecture club in her area called the Explorers Club. She runs a YouTube channel, which includes a very creative show called Egyptomaniacs with a lot of hands-on crafty type stuff for kids, but also for adults. She runs The Seventh Ray, which is a mixed reality platform inspired by mystery school initiation techniques. All this and more you can find at her website, themysteries.org. And it was a wonderful conversation, and we really had a lot of fun. Before we jump into the episode, we'd like to continue our dedication to highlighting uh, independent creators, authors, readers, and spiritual workers during this difficult time. And today we'd like to highlight our good friend, Eric Arneson of Arnomancy.com in Portland, Oregon. Arnomancy is all about tarot, magic, hermeticism, and occult philosophy. Eric is a longtime Freemason with over 25 years of experience with the tarot and just as much time studying Hermeticism. He runs the website. He also runs a podcast called the Arnomancy Podcast, previously known as My Alchemical Bromance, and he's interviewed a lot of very interesting characters on those two podcasts. Eric is also running classes here in Portland. Obviously, they're on hold for now, but he puts them up on his website, and you can join in those classes from there for a reasonable price. He's got uh, an introduction to planetary magic course, a lunar magic course, and an introduction to sigil magic course currently. Again, you can find those all on arnamancy.com, A-R-N-E-M-A-N-C-Y.com. And before we go any further into the episode, we would like to, again, acknowledge the difficulties people are facing now And just remind everyone that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and we will all be back to our normal lives. So just hang in there, everyone. Something I personally find valuable that my friend and teacher has said, uh, Reverend Kosho Finch, is that we should look at this time as a government-mandated meditation retreat. So this is the time to catch up on all the meditation that you haven't been doing or to increase your meditation time to increase your studies, your practices, catch up on all those books that you need to finish and that research you need to do. It's time to create art, music, and practice your chosen disciplines with increased vigor. As always, we dedicate this episode to Hermes as well as Asclepios, and may any merits accumulated doing this work be extended to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally Realize Awakening. Okay, we are delighted to have independent researcher and professional dreamer, Sarah Janes, on the show from Hastings, England. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hello, thank you for having me. Yes, welcome. And welcome, Janice. How are you? 
I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. How are you? <laughs> so, uh, Janice and I are really excited to have you on, Sarah, because um, for one, we have both been obsessed with dreams since an early age for both of us. And uh, when we read your stuff and, and heard you talk, it was like a kindred spirit. So we thought, this is a cool character. We need to talk to her. And you've got all sorts of other cool projects going on as well. So it just seemed like a no-brainer to have you on. Thank you for agreeing once again. So before we get too deep into dreams and Asclepius and, and those things, would you mind giving us a brief backstory on how you became involved in the whole world of the esoteric and specifically how you became involved, your, your interests in the, the dream hospitals? Well, I've always absolutely loved dreaming. I would say it's my main interest in life as a kid. It was all I thought about. It inspired every creative act. Um, I just loved dreaming. I, I lucid dreamed a lot. I actually think that it might have been um, uh, because my dad built me a cabin bed that didn't have a ladder. And so in the middle of the night, I couldn't get out of bed and go for a wee. So I'd have to um, remember to not wet myself while I was having a dream. And uh, I think there's something about cabin beds as well. I think my dad might have been a bit drunk when he made it and he didn't put any like guards in. So I couldn't, um, I was a bit scared that I might roll out and die. So I used to lie on my back quite still a lot. And then he did another great thing. Like I have my dad potentially to thank for my lucid dream uh, life, but he had got really drunk when he was doing my ceiling and he had been like artexing it. And uh, there were these like drips that I could choose to look at them as like pointing downwards or sucking upwards. And so I'd spend a lot of time doing these weird little optical tricks with my eyes. And I think one of the things I've come to think about um, during, throughout my research is that a lot of um, a lot of dreaming has something to do with the way that you see or look at things, and it's this particular soft gaze that you have to develop and practice in order to become familiar with, especially the sensation and the experience of falling into a dream. You know, you know, as you're falling asleep, you must know that you've had those experiences where you're. It feels like you're walking along a curb, you're having like a little dream, and your foot goes off the edge of a curb, and you have this myclonic jerk experience where you go like, <gasps> in bed. And um, I used to have that loads because I think um, I used to be able to prolong the journey into sleep and dreaming for a long time through hypnagogia, and I think that's the key actually is to become familiar with that hypnagogic state. And use it as an entry point or a tunnel into a dream. It sounds like that's that came very naturally for you. Um, in your experience teaching workshops and, and talking with other people, do you have any techniques that you've come up with to help people navigate that who maybe it doesn't come as naturally for? Yeah, my favorite thing in workshops at the moment is definitely sleep hypnosis. Like I really like a hands-on practical experiential type workshop rather than sitting down and talking about stuff I'd rather take people on that journey and actually sleep hypnosis and a kind of guided hypnagogic dream meditation so I get people lying down I get people really comfortable we lie on our backs and then I do a kind of spoken meditation for them sometimes there are things like um singing bowls or rattles or, or very sort of subtle musical accompaniments, but mostly it's just talking and taking someone on a journey and encouraging and, uh, 
and kind of reconfirming the the way that I want them to look into the dream space because I think that the reason why perhaps our dreaming faculties are diminishing somewhat at the moment is this um, is our massive use of devices and technology and uh, our eyes are now kind of entrained to look towards surfaces and flat surfaces and actually uh, we need to remember to look into darkness and allow the imaginary realm to flow into us. And I think that doesn't happen when the, you know, every kind of device you look at, you look at a a flat plane or you look at a screen and there's action there, but you're still looking at a flat surface. And um, I used to do this thing when I was a kid of pushing my palms into my eye sockets And then I would see this like tunnel of stars and I'll travel through that. And there's something about, like I say, that soft gaze and that staring into the abyss uh, style of looking at something that is is really conducive to entering dreaming. So I try to get people to do that. And sometimes I might um, give the example actually of, remember those magic eye pictures? You know, like the way you've got to look at a magic eye picture where... Um, one technique that can help is if that magic eye picture is in a frame and the picture is behind glass, you look at the reflection in the glass and you kind of, you travel through the picture and that's how those images pop up. So a magic eye picture could actually be a handy little entrainment device. Okay, cool. And yeah, something that, that I really like the experiential hands-on part. So you are a researcher. I mean, you're very knowledgeable, obviously. Anyone who listens to you talk can hear that you've spent a lot of time thinking and researching about these things, but your main focus seems to be the experiential and the hands-on, which is great. It adds uh, an important dimension to the whole the process. You're not just studying things, but you, you want to do them. You want to make them happen, and you want to make them happen for other people as well, which is really cool. Um, so when did you uh, learn about, how long ago did you learn about the dream hospitals and the Asclepions? Uh, when did you come into contact with the Sclepios? So I, um, I've always been really interested. I was talking about them a lot, and I've I've started I started a little lecture club down in Hastings in about 2012. And uh, one of the lecturers, we had a subject, uh, we had a, a lecture about uh, DMT, and the lecturer was Dr. David Luke, and he was talking about aspects of psychedelic science. And I've never taken psychedelics, but I've always, you know, a lot of my lucid dream experiences, I've had lucid dream experiences where I've taken psychedelics or some other drugs, or I've got drunk, or I've had different substances that have altered my consciousness within the dream state. And I was talking to David Luke about all of this stuff. And he was saying, you know, about, you know, how great he thinks lucid dreams are. And he was doing a lucid dream study. And he told me that, um, these dream, these sleep hospitals existed and that there was one in uh, Gloucestershire actually in the UK that was a Roman sleep temple. So that tradition persisted into Roman times. And uh, it was probably years later. So I think this would probably have been about 2013, 2014 that he introduced me to it. And then at some point I was on Tinder once and I met this archaeologist and I made him drive me to this sleep temple in Lidley Park in Gloucestershire and uh, had a look around this sleep temple. I just got really into it, basically, and then started to look into the Greek traditions. And I think what got me about the Greek ideas around the Asclepians was this um, ability that ancient Greek people believed dreams could have to actually cure you from diseases and basically activate a sort of faith-healing response to a dream event of healing. 
And that intuitively felt totally possible to me. You know, we accept placebo is a, is a, is a totally accepted scientific area of research that people can take sugar pills and they can respond as if they've taken medicine. And faith healing has been shown to work in many instances as well. So I think that, um, if anything, uh, a, a healing event that occurs in the dream state, and especially the lucid dream state, when your body and mind are deeply integrated in a way that they are never as integrated in any other state of consciousness, may be the most potent foundation for a healing event of that sort. And I think what happens is your body has a, a perhaps like, um, intensive homeostasis experience really so it just activates self-healing mechanisms within the body so th- there's obviously lots to it but they did exist for thousands of years and I just don't think they would have existed for that long if they weren't effective in some way yeah I think that's a, a perfect point and I was gonna I wanted you to maybe talk about the placebo effect uh, the panacea and yeah the fact that these things did exist for so long. So there must have been quite a bit of success. And I I do like how you speak about maybe the mechanics of how it, it could work. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand though, I want to say um, besides the placebo effect, I do think that it is possible to contact a divine intelligence in the dream state. And I, I, though I do believe that the mind is capable of healing the body insofar as that the body is in a way an extension of the mind and vice versa. I also believe that a divine intelligence can enter into the, uh, the sphere of the psyche and uh, trigger transformation, uh, whether that be through the regeneration of physical damage, the awakening of interior psychic faculties, or uh, the, just the experience of a theophany and Asclepius was certainly known for uh, all of the above, you know, and I, I think uh, I think that it's interesting, especially considering the relationship he had with the Egyptian Imhotep. Because um, if you look at Imhotep, you have essentially an Egyptian saint who is considered also to be sort of a manifestation of Thoth or Jehuti, and. So there, it's funny, with Imhotep, you have this, on one hand, you have this god who is, in the Greek tradition, uh, very soul, he's, this, uh, he's related to Apollo, so there's a solar relationship, which I want to talk to you about later. But on the other hand, in the Egyptian tradition, you have Imhotep, who is a hermetic figure. Uh, he even appears in the Corpus Hermeticum as a disciple of Hermes. And I do think, given that, within the hermeticism, ancient hermeticism, especially you're dealing with um, very much the, the God of the mind. And so you have this um, spiritual uh, experience of states of consciousness that are beyond the body, like dreaming or leaving the body. And so I, I think that Imhotep kind of fits into that paradigm really well. And, and, um, Doing magic in dreams, I think, should be a goal for anyone who's able to lucid dream or become conscious. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on actually that, on doing magic within the dream I think the same really applies to magic as applies to the potential for healing. And I do think the agency of a personification in the dream state is really important because you need that 
figure to activate the healing response. I've had dreams myself where um, I had one dream in particular that comes to mind where I um, made contact with the god Ahura Mazda and he entered my body as a being of light and I could see, as you often do in dreams, you see like close up and far away at the same time. And I could see this um, being lit up from the outside, but also inside my body, I could see my DNA spirals untwisting and him stepping down the rungs of the ladder of my DNA. And I think that, you know, the, the idea of gods and the idea of these personifications and these figures are really important because if you have a physical form or a physical representation of an idea it gives you something tangible to direct your focus and attention on so that's why I think they're so powerful and effective and Imhotep like you say is a is a historical character who was deified when he died years later he's turned into a god and he was considered to be the son of and so he had this uh, creative force because Ptah is a creator god and um, the the idea of ancient Egyptian people was that if you slept in the sacred precinct of a temple dedicated to a particular god that would be uh, an area where you could have a dream in which they would enter it because that temple was considered to be their realm and uh, their the sacred precinct and so at that point where you find yourself sleeping in their temple they could come and visit you in a dream and Imhotep was credited with you know um started to become credited with making barren women able to conceive children and and all these kinds of things so I think that when you look at the Egyptian religious system though gods names they all kind of shift around they they can almost be swapped their sexual their sexuality and their sex can be swapped like a male god can be represented as a female god um and there's an understanding i think there that the gods are personifications of these invisible forces and powers and so they can be represented and they're often represented with these symbols like for example mart is represented with the feather of truth and it's the symbols really that are the striking meaningful aspect of it but people like this personality to be attached to it as well um, and with Asclepius I think actually it's much more about the snake and the serpent energy than a man really the man is a is a familiar character I suppose but really it's all about the snake energy for me I think that and the snake energy as well goes back to much more ancient traditions of snake worship and snake cults and um, and then also I think it's interesting with Apollo being Asclepius's father um Apollo is thought to have like smashed up the um the temple uh to the uh to Pythia and to the snake goddesses there and the the original snake is supposed to be this female demon figure and so I think that Asclepius has this very strong connection to uh the oracular tradition in ancient Greece actually and that can't be underestimated in terms of what those sleep hospitals were really about they were they also had a, like you, we were talking about earlier, a sort of mystery element to them, an initiatory element to them, and that a sleep in an Asclepian was really a, a rite of passage and a spiritual religious experience, as well as uh, hospital treatment, potentially. Eloquently said, I completely agree with what you said there, and especially considering, the, considering this sort of totemic um, 
this sort of totemic symbol of the snake, which is associated both with with healing and with um, initiation, regeneration, transformation, as well as um, just really the true esotericism, true the true secrets of esotericism. And it goes back to Hermes. I think that too. the snake is a, a conduit for earth energy, really, because of this um, connection with the underworld and especially with this connection of the earlier traditions of the oracle at Delphi. So Apollo smashed up the oracle at Delphi and took out, for the most part, the female control that was there. And so interestingly, I think um, Asclepius really replaces a character like the Minoan snake goddess, actually, and that the Minoan snake goddess would have been an earlier incarnation of a healing snake deity. That's a <clears throat> that's very interesting. We had a um, we had a discussion last year with a man named James Rietveld about Artemis of the Ephesians, and as far as I understand it, uh, in certain expressions, snakes are associated with her as well. And in generally speaking, um, yeah, the snake is associated both with the Chthonic mysteries and with with different goddesses. And then you see a development of this later in um, say the healing cult, the therapeutae mm-hmm. who would were, were said to be able to hold serpents, almost like Horace does on the Metternich Stela in his hands. Um, and it also makes me think of the mysteries of the Gnostics because in Gnosticism, Sophia uh, divine wisdom is very closely associated with the serpent who is depicted in a positive way as a healing healing and enlightening power um, which harkens back to really uh, pre-recorded mm-hmm. history and then these are things i think that within the dream state within a neuromantic uh, applications we can more than just read about these things or talk about them, but we can, we can experience these. I think that's the thing. Snakes um, were a big part of those Asclepian temples. They were allowed to roam freely around the complex and snakes are a really sort of primal symbolic image. I, I don't think many people could sleep in a room full of snakes and not dream about snakes. I think they would almost certainly enter your dream realm at some point. And how, you know, conveniently, they are also seen as being the animal form of Asclepius. So the idea of the dream in the sleep temples would be that, you know, after a period of uh, ritual purification and preparation, you would go into this chamber called the Abiton and uh, you would be laid on a couch called the Kleene, which is where we get our word clinic from. So there's lots of modern medical terminology that comes from Asclepians as well that people don't necessarily connect. But, um, you know, in this Abaton, the idea was that um, in order to be healed, you would have to have a direct contact with the God in your dream. And often he was recorded as performing physically impossible operations so for example like chopping someone's head off and tipping bees out in the dream or whatever and then they'd wake up you know without a headache and um uh i think that there were certain steps that would probably be effective in recuperation for a lot of people in a lot of different situations and a lot of the a lot of the conditions that people went to Asclepians with were mental emotional 
situations as well. You weren't allowed to go into the Esclepon if you were on death's door or, you know, bleeding to death or, or in labour. Um, so in that instance, they could prevent too many people dying on their sacred precinct, which would was considered to make the precinct unclean. So, so um, yeah, that's also quite convenient. <laughs> well, you know, there's an interesting site with a lot of ex-voto uh, inscriptions from Asclepia, uh, as well as other places. I forget the forget the website but it's a website you where where um you know they display literally there's literally hundreds and hundreds of 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 um dedicatory plaques to asclepius thanking yeah. him for it was like it. advertising they're yeah. called ayamata all the little bits of um <laughs> uh the votive reliefs and stuff and like bits of leg and ear whatever area of the body's been healed it was there and i think that that the effect of that can't be underestimated really if you're in a if you're in a place where everywhere you look there are attestations to the efficacy of this healer god it's going to be quite powerful i think it is you know like a kind of dream qvc type situation like you're constantly being sold this uh healing magic and i th- i think it would have been really powerful but also it was an in- a really healing lovely place to go to as well and you were swaddled in uh white linen so you went in kind of like a newborn baby and you were you had to go through um cold baths so there was a sort of slight Wim Hof element to it as well Sclepius does look a little bit like Wim Hof so Wim Hof may well be like the the new incarnation of Asclepius and uh so you'd go through these cold baths, you'd make offerings at the um, altar to Asclepius. It was rituals, a really important programming device for effective revelations in that sort of way, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, think of the subconscious impact of these environments. And this is all before them. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how the archaic mind was different from our mind in a lot of ways too. So with us, there's this extra layer of the extra rational, analytical, intellectual mind. I'm really, really interested in that. In like people like Julian Jaynes, the theory of the bicameral mind, the evolution of consciousness. It makes complete sense to me that our perception of reality would have changed according to our cultural habits and our tools our intellectual tools and I think language and writing is a huge part of that and um, I do really believe that like literature language and dreams are on this co-creative journey and that's also where I believe magic comes in because writing and the creative act is a form of magic and I really believe that um, you know for example I'm quite interested in those very early what we call Venus cults you know where they worship the earth goddess and the earliest dream incubation rituals seem to be rituals where people just slept directly on the earth to absorb the wisdom of the earth goddess and I believe that people thought that they lived on a giant feminine form and saw themselves as as the children of the earth and then created artistic representations of the earth as they saw it as a giant voluptuous goddess figure. And in creating, in creating characters, you are then giving like visual data and input into your imagination so that you can then interact with those characters in the dream state. 
And I think that part of what makes the mysteries and those initiation experiences so potent and powerful is the symbolic embedding in the unconscious mind that can then be fully realized in the dream state. So perhaps the initiatory um, peak experience isn't in the realm of reality, but it actually happens when it gets integrated in the dream state and in the unconscious mind. And speaking, speaking of that and going back to snakes for a minute, um, as an embedded image, which is very important. How important do you think the snakes would be in reviving the uh, Asclepions and bringing back these healing hospitals? Would How important are bringing real snakes back into the picture? And is I don't know that anyone's even doing that. No, I don't know that anyone's even doing that. I quite like the idea of it. They weren't venomous, so they weren't too uh, threatening. Um, there's e- the the species of snake is actually the Asclepian snake. So they're named after their, their use in the Asclepian temples. And um, I like the idea of, of some populations of snake in the wild being descendants of temple snakes. Mm-hmm. And they were really important. And when the, um, the chief temple of Asclepius was at Epidaurus and snakes from that temple, that was considered to be the birthplace of Asclepius by some And snakes from that temple would be taken on journeys and, uh, you know, from boats released. And wherever they slithered off to, that was decided to be the place to construct a new temple to Asclepius. And it was a massive pan-Hellenic cult. There are Asclepians in Turkey now. There's like hundreds of them all over the pan-Hellenic world. So they they had a lot of power and it was a really influential cult, which is why when the Christian forefathers kind of came into play, they tried to destroy as much of the Asclepian cult as they could possibly destroy because Asclepius is rather closely um, aligned with Jesus Christ, a bearded healer God with a staff and with healing powers, miraculous healing powers. It's very closely, um, very similar, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and that's also relates to uh, the resurrection aspect as well. Mm-hmm. And and again, I mean, when we're talking about when we're talking about Asclepius and the early Christians, yeah, there's again this distinction here because it's there's definitely some evidence that the Gnostics were very much connected with these Greek mystery cults, and many of the Alexandrian Gnostics were also initiates of the uh, mystery cults, and there was a matrix of people who worked in this world, and then you had this sort of hostile takeover that occurred within early Christianity of this particularly aggressive sect that entered into marriage with the political powers that were and sought to obliterate not only the Gnostics, but everyone, the mystery schools and all of that, which all of us, you know, we know about this, but it's definitely interesting to me because if you get your mind out of the dichotomy between Christian and pagan or, you know, Egyptian and Zoroastrian, you think, okay, well, <clears throat> these were external cult- cultures of the outer world. But in terms of the mysteries, you know, the records speak of people traveling to different places and being initiated in different cults of the mysteries in different places. And that, that in itself uh, points to me to a... Um, an idea of perhaps an underground an underground system of the mysteries you could say which led people to 
an interior experience of a cult that may have actually been centered around, for lack of a better word, serpent worship. And again, mm-hmm. maybe not worship of the actual physical animals, although there may have been an element of that, but worship of an actual being or beings that had serpent form. And these beings are being associated with the uh, underground world. But when we think of the underground worlds, not only in a physical, literal sense, but also as a metaphor for that, which is below or beyond surface consciousness, a world, an inner world, an inner realm, then the serpent also starts to take on this connotation of the representation of an interior experience of uh, revelation, you could almost say. Yeah, I do think that the Asclepian snake symbol is really a a Greek version of the the idea of Kundalini and this inner energy that can be activated through Shaktipat. It can be a spontaneous activation of this inner energy. And And I think that some of the experiences in those dreams in Asclepians may have been those sorts of experiences. My favorite thing about lucid dreaming is that wave of bliss that you get. You get like a real physical response to being fully present in a dream state and conscious of how you're creating the environment you're in and you do get like a bliss a bliss body state and I think that that is a kundalini experience and that if people were going to Asclepians and having these healing um, events happen to them in the dreams that they would have been experiencing something like that and maybe that's enough to heal somebody spontaneously and also I think like our consciousness has evolved our sensitivities have also involved you know evolved a lot and that ancient people had a generally speaking much more simplistic life a much more simplistic diet less toxic elements in their life and in their bodies so that perhaps they could be aligned much simpler than modern people can. Mm-hmm. And the Asclepions themselves were a, a good place to realign and reset. Um, they were uh, multidisciplinary. You'd probably have musicians. I'm assuming mm-hmm. you would have massage, the equivalent of massage therapists, physical therapists, doctors of the, of the time, um, very multidisciplinary. You'd be in a setting that was very serene, um, and relaxing, like a modern day spa. And then on top of that, you would have these dream incubation experiences. So it was coming at you from every single angle. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we're maybe thinking about that for maybe modern practice. How can we uh, bring this back? How can we uh, mirror this this technology that seemed to be so effective? Um, I think we do have to look at it from this multifaceted uh, angle. Yeah, I think the key to understanding the effectiveness of the Asclepians is about this approach that the ancient Greeks had towards health, which was viewing health as harmony. Mm -hmm. And so the Asclepians were really a harmonious environment, like a very harmonious environment that people entering, they would have to already have gone through some periods of abstinence from alcohol and meat and sex and things like that. And so they were already uh, cleansing their bodies. And um, the idea, I think, is that in entering this sacred precinct, you aligned to the harmonious atmosphere there. So you became 
I think it's like really great ancient Greek feng shui, mm -hmm. essentially, very similar sort of discipline. But like you say, they're in beautiful locations. Often they're like, they're nearly always surrounded by beautiful forests. There were springs there for the water um, and they had lovely views. They had massive uh, theatres and amphitheatres mm -hmm. where you could see performances. Singing and music and art was massively important. There were cultural competitions all the time in Asclepians. They took part in the in the Mysteries of Eleftis as well. So there would be competitions held. There was a day of Asclepius as part of the ritual there. So I think that, I think they really understood that health is about bringing the body into balance and harmony and that external influences can realign the body into that, especially music and sound, because they designed some of their buildings to be acoustically um, effective. So the amphitheater is tuned in Epidaurus, for example, and there's also a structure called a tholos that is a circular structure that's designed to project project and amplify the quiet lyre music that would have been played inside. So there would have been this like peaceful music wafting throughout the sanctuary. It would have been like a really, like you say, a spa, like a really relaxing, beautiful place to go. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they, if someone would bring this back? I mean, it sounds amazing. Uh, that's, what I wanna, that's what I want to do, but uh, it's out of my budget right now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I could do it on a small scale in Hastings, like just get a beach hut yeah, yeah. and a liar and start there. <laughs> Dip in the sea. Actually, this is what, this is starting to work. Yeah, no, it sounds awesome. Well, you know, that also kind of does segue into something that, that I think is essential, which is I think about this a lot and that's how do we bring these things into our lives today? How do we realize these things in our lives today? We can read all we want about the mysteries, but if we don't actually experience them directly, if we don't try and recover what has been lost, um, then there's no point in it. The whole point of you know educating us, ourselves about these things is to then attempt to experience them. And, and then we can hopefully play a part in reconstructing or, or redeveloping or, you know, this, this stream of interior experience for other people as well and the more people that are working on this project the more the more we'll see it manifest yeah, again I, on this physical level yeah, i totally agree with that and i completely agree as well that it's all about direct experience that's why i do most of my workshops are practical sleep hypnosis and just familiarize, familiarizing yourself with that hypnagogic travel potential. But I also think, you know, the more I've, I'm doing a lot of um, learning about hieroglyphs at the moment and Egyptian mythology. And every night I read books about mythology and I draw my hieroglyphs and I have Egyptian dreams every single night without fail because those symbols are so potent that they get very easily into your dream space. So the same can be said for any of these systems, any of these religious spiritual systems that rely heavily upon symbolism and archetypes, they're going to get into your dreams. So actually reading about them, they, they get there and you can have a direct experience in the dream space. You don't need an elaborate temple complex. It's really about, um, you know, how do we, how do you facilitate these dream experiences? And I think that, a sleep temple is one way of doing it and it can be really effective. But another way is making that conscious intention and decision 
to get find yourself in that space when you dream. Well, in the Western mystery tradition too, um, different schools actually teach you to build an interior temple. So, I mean, essentially, if one could become proficient enough at lucid dreaming, they could in, construct an interior oniromantion and then work from that place as a base of operations within the the sacred space. And it's interesting because perhaps if that was constructed, you could then um, create it in such a way that when you enter into it in the dreaming state, it would um, reinforce your ability to stay conscious while dreaming and, you know, not fall out of conscious dreaming into unconscious dreaming again. You know, you could, because anytime a temple space is created, the power of that space is reinforced. So, so it could really be a positive thing. And that's a fascinating idea that you brought forth there. Um, and he, as is the idea of hieroglyphic dreaming, because, you know, the, the, the medu neter are, are really the, they're really the words of thought. Mm. So they live forever. They never, they always live. They, they work in such amazing ways as well. Like I've been learning about them for a few months now and drawing my own. And there's something very meditative about writing hieroglyphs and um there is also something very uh it relates a lot to dream memory the way the writing system works and the way the symbols work so for example um you you have like different um you have different types of hieroglyphs so you have the ones that have a phonetic value but they normally have some sort of symbolic character meaning as well and in a phrase you might have like three three hieroglyphs depicting phonetic values for the word. And then you could have a, a, what's called a determinative, which shows you exactly what that word is. And it's, it really works the way that it really works in the same way that dreams work, the composite way that dreams encode uh, meaning puns, wordplay uh, and a literal meaning and a symbolic message the, the way that you read hieroglyphs works in that same sort of way. So they're a really fantastic tool for people that are looking into conscious dreaming because they get into your dreams like crazy because of the, I think because of the pictorial aspect to them, they're really easy to remember because the way that you can recall and remember them uh, utilizes so many different intellectual ways of thinking it you have to kind of philosophically think why does this image represent this and you have to think about the sound value and the symbolic meaning of that image as well so it's a real like full brain experience when you read hieroglyphs well so you have to gestate the symbol in the womb of your mm -hmm. mind until you give birth to the knowledge of its i've had meaning. so many dreams about hieroglyphs and i had this dream about uh corona uh the other day and you know corona means crown and i just keep dreaming about sekhmet and her name meaning she who overwhelms and she is the, a goddess that represents uh, plague and war and violence but also healing and the healing comes from this fire this burning up of evil that sekhmet has has this power and um, in my dream, her name was represented in hieroglyphs and it meant it was it meant she who overwhelms. Her name means like really feminine power. But um, in my dream, it meant she who overwhelms. And I had this amazing vision of the solar disk on her head. And and I had this feeling of how like the sun is is really the um, 
the antidote to coronavirus and that we need to kind of be crowned by the sun. That's intriguing because of the connection between Asclepius and Apollo and the connection between Apollo and disease as well. Apollo being a solar deity like Sekhmet. Mm. It's also interesting because recently I I actually had a spontaneous, it was more in the hypnagogic state before dreaming, but I I definitely had a spontaneous image of Sekhmet appear in my awareness. Mm. And I wasn't really directly thinking about her for quite some time, although although I think that she's a force to be reckoned with and that it would be wise for people to even uh, be venerating Sekhmet. Yeah, I, I also right think now. Tiger King played into that because <laughs> I, I, oh. I watched Tiger King and the tiger and the, those big cat faces are just so, like, powerful and they really burn into your minds because that's just so beautiful and so primal and threatening and beautiful at the same time and it was so funny to me that tiger king came out just when everyone was going into lockdown and this image of this like powerful because i i have um lions and tigers in my dreams all the time and they're my triggers for lucid dreaming and uh, so it was just really funny to me as well because the whole of tiger king is like my lucid dreams which is massive tigers and lions behind these really flimsy fences where you know that they could kill you any second and there's this very very heavy atmosphere of threat like barely contained threat so there was something about watching tiger king that was very dreamlike for me and that was also very um some people would say nightmare yeah overlay on the whole corona business that for me, like that, it worked really well, and I think that's an amazing thing because people, so many people, have been getting in contact with me about their dreams during this Corona lockdown, and uh, that's what the dream can do. It can make an invisible threat visible. So loads of people, having watched Tiger King, are envisaging Corona as tigers and lions. <laughs> Interesting. If only it would strike down some of the. If, if only some of these oligarchs would get this disease. I'm not saying if only they would die because I don't wish death upon anyone, but maybe it would assist them in being more compassionate if Sekhmet were to strike them directly, mm. you know, undermine these structures. But yeah, I, I, um, I meant to mention earlier when you were talking about the hypnagogic state, that state is also really interesting for the purposes of creating art or um, just doing all kinds of mystical experience. I mean, Austin Spare was very much about that hypnagogic state. You know, and he would draw on he would draw on that for his magical images that he would paint and draw on everything. And I think for him, it was really the fulcrum of being able to jettison yourself into a, a, any realm you wanted to go into in order to interact with a wide variety of spiritual beings. And I think that if you stay, if you're able to stay conscious in that hypnagogic state long enough, and there's, I think Tibetans have dream yoga that teaches you how to do this too you will eventually come to a point where you witness the formation of the dream. You, you see the dream actually yeah. unfolding. Yeah. That's my favorite, my favorite way to do it. And it's, um, it's a very interesting thing to observe in terms of how you create dreams and potentially how you might even create reality in your waking life. Because, um, 
I do wonder sometimes whether reality isn't a kind of product of the seeds that are set in our dream states. And I've been in the hypnagogic experience where I start to see like vague thoughts or fleeting impressions becoming solid dream material. And so that, you know, it feels to me, I try, I use the analogy of like Alice falling down the rabbit hole quite a lot. Like hypnagogia is falling down the rabbit hole and the dream is the waking up in the tunnel and realizing where you've come from. And uh, for me, like my top tip for that is go, go to bed sleeping on your back. It's just, it's like a really, really simple technique, but you can usually prolong the hypnagogic experience. And I think it's all about prolonging, expanding the hypnagogic experience and becoming more familiar with the kind of taste of it so that you recognize the dream as it forms and can keep the thread of consciousness into the dream. But one of the things I wanted to bring up about the Asclepians, which is one of my favorite aspects of it, is actually um, the worship of the goddess Mnemosyne, the personification of memory, as one of the final rituals before entering the Abaton. And I think this is key and is actually forgotten quite a lot, ironically, because she's the goddess of memory. Um, that this final invocation, you do a fumigation of frankincense, and frankincense has this amazing ability, actually, to so you're hotboxing frankincense, essentially, and it is psychoactive. But it has this amazing ability to, if you have ever meditated with a, you know, a heavy cloud of frankincense, you realize that memories um, arise in much more vivid visual impressions. And um, you would invoke the goddess Mnemosyne so that you could remember what you were about to experience in this dream. And I think setting that intention of remembering is really important and that the, the Greeks had a personification for Mnemosyne as a power is really interesting to me but she's not just she's not the goddess of memory and um you know i think the way we even think about memory in modern terms is different i think ancient people thought thought about memory in a much more integrated um uh i suppose divine way they thought about memory as being remembering your spiritual roots remembering that you're a child of the star starry heaven and of earth and um Mnemosyne is really the goddess of remembrance and sense making so it's not just remembering what you experience in a dream but it's making sense out of what you experience in a dream and almost like bringing the jewels out of the cave of your subconscious mind. I think that was very nicely said and a a really great tip to remember that Manasame invocation and I want to do talk about maybe some more of your tips and tricks for lucid dreaming if you don't mind but before that I want to get even more general so what are your thoughts? I'm, I assume you've thought about this a lot. What are dreams? What's going on? There's a lot of theories. And like we talked about before we hit the record, um, you had some really cool conversations with Anthony Peak, And he's got some really interesting theories as well. So where are you with, with your theories on, on dreams and what's going on there? I think they're all different kind of classes of dreams, really. And like ancient Greeks, they kind of categorized dreams and there were uh, divine dreams. There were sort of puzzle dreams that needed interpretation. And there were everyday humdrum dreams or warning dreams, omens, things like this. And I think from my personal experience of dreaming, um, I have some dreams where they don't feel very meaningful to me. They're just kind of emotional reenactments or... I can tell them memory processing things or just reliving certain aspects of my mm-hmm. life. Other dreams that feels like something amazing has happened. And I've had that divine contact 
contact. Other dreams feel like uh, messages that need puzzling out. Like there's kind of clues in there, like wordplay and puns. I love, there's so much of that in dreaming and people don't necessarily appreciate it. But it's one of the things that dream journaling can really help you with because you might dream about something or a person in um, in the night and then when you write it down, the, the truth of why you dreamt about that person or that thing is actually in the word itself and not, the, not any kind of emotional connection to that person. Um, and then what I, one of the things I also think is that a dream is a visual representation of sensory information coming from your body and from the environment that you're sleeping in, interpreted visually and as dramatic or active content. So, you know, you are picking up on um, information all the time. Your senses are just interpreting those inner signals visually rather than, you know, you wouldn't notice those if you're awake. And I, I think really subtle things can become quite big things in the dream mm-hmm. state as well, like very subtle sensations or very quiet noises. And I think noise pollution is probably one of the biggest things that disturbs people's sleep. That and memory foam mattresses. So my top tip is don't have any memory, memory foam mattresses or eat big dinners. Because say, for example, um, if you eat a big meal before you go to sleep, your digestive system is having to work really hard and you may have dream content that's about being in a war or fighting a battle and it's actually like a visual interpretation of the subtle activity that's going on inside your body or one thing I find is if you get hot in the night if you've got a horrible memory foam mattress you might have scary fearful dreams of being burned or it may not even be a heat related scary dream, but it's often you're uncomfortable. So it'll be an uncomfortable situation dream. Okay. And how often do you personally or do you at all go through this process of catharsis where you do like almost ritual purification, baths, fasting, perhaps diet alteration. Do you do any of that? Um, I do a little ritual every time I go to sleep. I like have to be prepared to go to sleep. I like to have my bedroom tidy and temple-like, light a candle. I don't have any devices in my bedroom. Um, I have a bath before I go to sleep. And I love all things related to ritual. I think it's really useful programming for dreaming in particular. Um, have a dark room. Temperature is really important. Um, so I have, you know, and then sometimes I will do things like uh, invocations to certain gods or goddesses. But one of the things that I find most effective is writing down what I want to dream mm. about and maybe drawing things that I want to see and then thinking about it as I'm falling asleep. And I think that is dream magic, really, and is also the way that chaos magic or magic works in general, because uh, that creative... Uh, that initial creative spark kind of concede your dreams. So you can, you can dream about whatever you want to dream about, but you can also make a conscious decision to like seed your dream with particular content, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Janice. I think um, a point you made earlier too, about when you're in the hypnagogic state and you notice how thoughts are becoming dream images Um, I think that's really significant. Uh, I had an insight many years ago during in my meditation practice because in meditation you, you witness thoughts without involving yourself in them. You know, it's one of the phases of meditation practice. And then eventually 
you hit a point where you start to see the cycle of thoughts. You start to see the thoughts moving. It's almost like a river or a cyclone that turns round and round. And I had an insight um, probably from dream lucidity that the images and dreams that we see, it's the same process that is going on all day when we're thinking. You know, when we're yeah. in those dreams that show us yeah, our thoughts. Instantly, instantly manifested. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. this is what I was I was talking about this the other day. So in when 3D. you're in a dream, yeah, when you're in a dream, you start thinking about stuff in your dream capacity. And as you're thinking, you generate moment to moment the content that is arising. Mm. And that is truly amazing. And that's why lucid dreaming feels so incredible because you become consciously, physically aware of the fact that you're generating every atom of the environment that you're in and, uh, you know, is a huge, it's a huge expansion of your sense of self. It's remarkable the way that happens. I mean, there's this dynamic process where thought is translated into reality. And that's sort of, sphere of that's led me to think about how it may be a blessing that on this plane of existence that doesn't happen for many people (laughs) (laughs) you know because i can see why the training of an initiate would be so important because you have to learn to discipline you know um desires uh negative emotions self-destructive thoughts and then and then there's also that extra aspect in a psychic sense of being able to have that inner filter so that you, thoughts of others don't enter into your psychic sphere and then become manifest within your own psychic sphere. Because when we're close to someone, or sometimes if we just live in a in an active area, I think that we can assimilate the thoughts and ideas of others through the uncon- through the subconscious mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another thing that comes up with the, the corona period that we're in is that I noticed when this first started starting in in the UK for me, it wasn't necessarily worldwide, but I was I was going to sleep feeling perfectly fine. I don't have a TV and I don't watch the news, so I wasn't getting really into the stress that people were feeling. But I would inexplicably wake up with this kind of panicky thing and I didn't know where it had come from. And I, I realised after a while it was almost like a collective fear that I was tapping into and it just didn't feel like mine at all and um, I've had experiences with um, with dreams like this in the past where I feel like I've missed my window of dreaming somehow and ended up in somebody else's dream and I'm having I have dreams that feel really not like my dreams at all Mm -hmm. my dreams you know I think of myself as like a dream film director and I have very recognizable oeuvre recurring motifs an aesthetic and sometimes it will be something completely different. And I do notice it when I sleep with my partner is totally different dreams where often we meet each other or they just have a a different content or a different feel. So I think that can be a big thing as well. And actually, you know, I think of sleeping as being uh, a magical act and it's, it's a huge investment in your health and well-being. That leads me to ask you your thoughts on another topic. I was actually going to ask you about that and you started talking about it. What do you think about that? What do you think about the idea of shared dreaming um, and minds that are connected? You know, because I think all of us, even those of us who may think we haven't um, 
experienced shared dreams or with others probably have you know mm. because if you think of if you think of the fact that on that subtle level all is mind in a sense anyway so it's not difficult for minds to interface and then you think of the fact though that when information enters the consciousness it then passes through the subjective interface of our personality and sometimes in my experience in, in dreams the information will then appear in symbols that we understand and recognize and can interpret personally. Mm. But if we're perceiving the material of another mind, we may not always be perceiving it as it is, but rather appearing through the filter of our own minds, you know, like through the menstruum of our own mind, you know, it's as if there's a thought which we could imagine as a symbol and the thought passes over to our mind and then it passes through this cellular envelope of our mind and when it passes through the cellular envelope of our mind, it becomes clothed in the substance of our mind and assumes a form that our subconscious assumes we're able to uh, interpret, you know? So like then there's this two phase, as, there's, there's these two steps of number one, you have to identify the thought or the image or the emotion as originating outside of yourself. And then number two, you have to identify its meaning, which in the other person's mind may be, may appear differently to them due to their own internal symbol set. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think a lot of it is about this, um, you know, I believe in collective memory and collective unconscious. And uh, with regards to memory, I think it's a really important faculty to develop because there are so many things that may arise in a dream that if you haven't got a very good memory, you may you may come to the wrong conclusions about because often people will say to me, oh, I wasn't even thinking about that, but they've watched a film just before they went to bed with those exact symbols in, you know, and it is weird how people will forget that, but it's easy to forget stuff when we're bombarded with imagery all day long. And you, you take like a five day detox of any kind of tech or any kind of device or any kind of screen time, and you will start to be able to more clearly identify where your dream imagery and your dream ideas and feelings are coming from. But I don't really watch any films. I do watch a lot of Star Trek, but <laughs> I don't really watch like TV at all. And I remember one time, like a really good example of this was that my, I watched um, Baby's Day Out with my daughter. <laughs> and that night, every single, every single dream was a bit of Baby's Day Out, but with my kid in it. And I was just like this. And even in the dream, I was just like, this is so stupid. This is ridiculous. <laughs> And I was like laughing at myself because it was just ridiculous how much I'd taken on board the, those scenes from Baby's Day Out. So, um, you know, I think it's, you know, it's worth keeping a diary for your waking daytime reality experiences and comparing your dream diary with that just to rule out just things that you've simply been exposed to that you may have forgotten about. I mean, I remember having a dream once um, where uh, these dinosaur eggs were hatching and triceratops dinosaurs came out of them. And I thought, wow, that's amazing, like weird dream to have. And I went downstairs and my friend's kid had these eggs with triceratops hatching out of it. And some people be like, whoa, I've never <laughs> seen them. But I thought, well, I must have just not, I must have glimpsed at right. them and just really registered because, you know, it's a very clear symbol. And that is the most obvious logical explanation for that. But, um, you know, 
I think that we're picking up so much information all the time. We're not necessarily conscious of everything that we're taking in, but the, I think we need to be mindful. I think of, um, I think of the sort of media that I take in and the films that I expose myself to and the TV is, is, is consciously limited because of that, because I think of, media as being like food for dream life and I don't really want a lot of it and um it my top tip for anyone coming to my dream workshops is often either write your own stories or novels or read really good novels that you wouldn't mind living in that world because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I'd never read John Fowles the collector but um I love magical realism so I I've always read a lot of magical realism so those kind of books that create a beautiful world that you wouldn't mind living in, they can be really fantastic for creating great dreams. And you were saying that you also have had shared dreams with your partner mm. when you sleep yeah. together. So what, what are your thoughts on shared dreams with others and shared dream space? Yeah, I think there's an aspect of proximity that does come into it actually. Like you're almost in this same sphere of influence when you're that close lying in bed together definitely an aspect of that something that I found when um you know I had my daughter I had so many dreams you suddenly have this extra uh area of focus in your life and this extra area of awareness and your consciousness does kind of expand to incorporate them to to some degree I remember a thing like I was hanging up, I'd hung up a cardigan on the washing line and I went to put her cardigan on because I felt so much like she was me and then realized it was a tiny little baby cardigan. So I couldn't. Mm -hmm. So there's, you're kind of like thinking in their mind and body in in a weird way, in a sort of projection type way. And that, that definitely starts affecting your dream life. Like you start to, you've almost like um, sent a tendril of your consciousness into them and you, you feel like a sense of awareness around them as well. So I think there's that, but there's also a, a wider global collective unconscious as well. And it may be based on harmony because I think it's also possible to dream of our ancestors or to even dream of memories that our ancestors had. Mm. You know, if you think about it, about affinity and harmony i think like for instance two people that are in love or that are together there's going to be a certain amount of psychic harmony between them as well and in between a parent and children uh, there's going to be a certain amount of harmony and then i i think also maybe between people that live in the same house live in the same home there may be a possibility i had a really unusual dream once Uh, i have a really eccentric friend and um well i have most of my friends are really eccentric but one of my many eccentric friends maybe one of the most eccentric i had a dream one night um we were sleeping you know he was my roommate at the time and i I dreamed i was in this sort of post-apocalyptic futuristic world where there were just mega cities everywhere almost no foliage and in the mega cities their police officers were like the the sort of governing you know those type of people were dressed like batman in order to like have that effect on people and i thought this was absurd and i woke up and i thought why the why the fuck was i dreaming about this this is ridiculous i would never dream something like this and then i went downstairs and i told my friend i'm like jason um i had this crazy dream and i think it might have come from your mind i'm sure enough he had been watching like judge dread and blade runner I've had, I've had that exact same thing happen to me as well i went to bed one time when i was living with my uh ex-housemate 
And um, I had a dream about Nazis, anal sex. <laughs> and I was like, I really like, this doesn't really feel like my dream. I don't want to do that. And then uh, I went downstairs and my housemate was watching a documentary about Alan Turing and the Second World War and everything. And I was just like, oh, that explains that. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Hey, um, so I want to pick your brain a little bit about the uh, this phenomenon of uh, dream deja vu too. And maybe Janice, something that you said a minute ago, maybe there's something to that the the connection with the ancestors, and maybe you're dreaming part of their lives or or some of their memories. But I quite frequently have this happen in dreams where I'll meet dream characters and scenarios, or I'll be at a place that. Uh, that aren't real they don't exist in reality or in in this waking world but i know in the dream that i've been there before i've met these people before and it almost seems like i've lived this whole other life in dreams that i can barely remember it's like a a complete life happening that i don't have any memory of except when i meet these certain characters and it's like oh what i love that I love that. I think it's my favourite thing. Like like you were saying, I call it like dream deja vu. Mm-hmm. And it is that feeling of like, it's on the tip of my tongue. I can kind of remember this, but I can't remember it. And then sometimes you go, you do go through down that rabbit hole and you start remembering yeah. things. But to me, it feels a bit like uh, a universal remembering. There's so much information there that, you almost can't open the gate to let it yeah. in because it's going to be so massive. Right. Uh, I get that feeling all the time. I mean, I do, I think about the, I often dream about the same places mm-hmm. and the way I've kind of described that is almost like the dream is this memory palace realm, you know, like Quintilian's mnemonic device of creating architectural form or structures to encode information. It's like the, psychic architecture of your personality so there are certain places that I go to in my dreams that I recognize and I know them from this dream life that I've had Mm -hmm. and then as I've come to analyze them I recognize what they are and it's quite funny actually because I've had I've had this recurring motif in my dream since I can remember of looking for this uh, fountain or spring of eternal wisdom or eternal life and uh a few years ago, I went to get my hair cut in Hastings and I got talking to the hairdresser and it turned out it came from like the same town as me in South London, Croydon. And uh, we were comparing like notes on our childhood and what we used to do and everything. And he said, oh, did you used to go to Beddington Park? And I was like, yeah, I love Beddington Park. He was like, did you ever drink from that magic spring? And I was like, oh my God, all my dreams have been about Beddington Park's magic spring. And I never thought that it was that. I thought that it was more of an esoteric, you know, like spiritual goal. But I suppose it's become the formula that's fitted with all the other interests that I've had in my life. And it's kind of served as this archetypal journey. And then I realized when I started to unpick that dream further, because um, it's not always in the same location. There's always the basic elements of being this quest for this fountain of life or wisdom or whatever. Um, there's usually some sort of meandering river, but it can basically take the form of, you know, like a Zoroastrian fire temple or a spa somewhere in the shape of a pyramid. Like it could be kind of any kind of building, but I realized that it's a sort of glamorized version of the park in, in Croydon, Hmm. which I just spent most of my childhood in. I really loved it. And I've kind of overlaid it with all these exotic and glamorous 
um, symbols and visuals, but it's essentially that walk that I used to do all the time in the park, but like a really fantastical, magical realism version of it. Well, or maybe you're perceiving like a layering of reality that's already present. Yeah, and you, yeah, you start to see that that is reality is layered, yeah. and you can look at it in any of those ways, and they would all be valid, really. And um, you know, yeah, I, I love those dreams. But once when when I worked it out, when I finally worked out what the dream was, I stopped having mm. them, and I was devastated because they were my favorite dreams. Um, but then I kind of made the decision that I wanted to start having them again, and I did. But I found that often in life is when I work out what a dream means, I stop having mm. it. And I think that that's, that's pretty consistent what even Jung found for people when, when they did the dream, when they, you know, his therapy was so based around the dreams. And I think that um, what he said is usually when the issue was resolved, when the dream was understood, it would disappear. And often if, if it had to do with an, a complex in the psyche, the complex would achieve resolution as well. But <clears throat> that also made me think about what you just talked about with the layering made me think about the polyvalency of uh, picto- pictographs, pictograms and hieroglyphic language. You have to learn to unchain your mind from a linear fixed idea when you're dealing with the, say the, you know, the, the hieroglyph for, an, for, for what is it? Is it M that's an owl, I believe? Yeah. That can mean several things. And it means all of those things together at the same time. And you have to be okay with that. You have to learn to be comfortable. Yeah, and you also have to look at the meaning on the one hand, still having a relationship to the meaning on the other hand as well. Like, for example, the Egyptian word for wise is zia. And the symbol of that is a fragment of rug or carpet, like it's a bit of weaving. And you can philosophize about why the sign for wise is this fragment of uh, fabric, you know, in terms of, you know, is it the fabric of the universe woven together to make, you know, there's so many layers of the meaning of that word and the sound of that word and the representation of that word. So that every time you write that word, you think about all of those different things. And, the, you know, like you said, the Medunedja, the God's words were imbued with magical power to creatively manifest anything that they describe. And so pharaohs could live forever because their names are engraved in stone and they're there forever, like magically represented by these hieroglyphic symbols. It's very interesting. When you, when you get into it. Another thing I was thinking about is when you were talking about technology and the, vo- the avoidance of it, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think there's a, a drawing of the consciousness even further out through the senses into the material realm through the agency of this technology. But like any Promethean gift, I think that we can turn the technology upon itself and make it bite its own tail and use it as a sort of re uh, as a sort of cyclical re-expression of technique like in dream to illustrate what i mean in dreams i've found that anything can be a doorway a window can be a door into another dream or another world but so can a i years ago when there was still like floor you know television floor sets <laughs> you know the big old televisions that would sit on the floor in our grandparents houses and stuff you know, I would step through those in dreams. Anything that had a screen in a dream can be a door or a window into another realm. And so I think that a good way of inverting um, the captivity of technology 
is by using it as a window to magically enter through or look through almost like a scrying mirror. Mm, I do think it's quite interesting actually. Like um, I, I did a talk at uh, the culture festival in Berlin about, about, I suppose, scrying and about um, that soft gaze and that staring into the abyss and the black mirror of, you know, the obsidian mirrors of the Mayans and, and people like that who used that surface to kind of peer into the imaginal realm. And that is what you do when you, you go to sleep every night. You peer into the imaginal realm. And if you haven't practiced peering into an imaginal realm, that can be quite hard. So I think that, you know, my phone's not doing anything at the moment. So I could use that as a sort of, it's a bit greasy though. I could use it as an obsidian mirror of sorts and uh, stare into that. But I think, I think incorporating something into your day every day where you have to employ a soft gaze and stare into nothingness might re-familiarize people with the experience of entering the imaginal realm through the eyes. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Well, that, that's a good segue. I don't want to interrupt. Maybe it'll give you a minute to, to gather your thoughts. But I, I did want to talk to you or hear about one of your projects, The Seventh Ray. Speaking of technology, it seems like it's a good segue into that. You uh, are, I don't know to what, capacity you're involved in it if it's your project or what you'll have to clarify but um bringing back the the mystery schools and the initiations but integrating technology and virtual reality systems into that to uh, make it more available to people in the modern day uh what's what's the whole seventh ray thing all about that that actually was exactly what i was gonna lead into okay perfect (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so I think virtual reality is one of those technologies that could be utilized exactly for that purpose, because the way in which you look into a virtual reality space is the same way in which you look about when you're in a dream. Like it's a close technological uh, assimile or facsimile rather of the lucid dream state, because you can look around and you can feel present in this fantasy realm. Uh, So the seventh ray is really an attempt to create a a virtual mystery initiation experience. Um, Myself and Carl H. Smith at Ravensbourne uh, University in London have developed it and we've designed the experience and then we've worked with a number of uh, programmers and virtual reality developers to make it. So we're on to our second version of it now. but yeah, the idea is to is to give people a first-hand experience of what it might feel like to be initiated. Because one of the things with initiation is it's it can be really scary, mm-hmm. and the the fear and the surrender is part of the effectiveness of it. But it's something that people uh, would probably really struggle with these days, especially if there isn't a a culture of initiation where known and trusted people in your community go through on a regular basis and it doesn't take much to scare people in the initiation sense we did a trial of it and uh one of the things we really wanted to do was that initial secrecy aspect of the initiation and blindfolding and leading people into a space that they didn't know and even that them that in itself is quite scary Mm -hmm. for people even though they might think before the blindfold goes on that they know where they're going or what they're in for there's still something very um, instinctual in them to feel a bit scared. And so in those more elaborate initiation rituals, 
with more well-established organizations that can be like a big deterrent for people to go through it because it's genuinely really scary and they really don't know what to expect and the that fear of the unknown uh, can be quite overwhelming and then that fear in itself is a sort of alchemical process that starts happening in your body as well and when you come out of it the other side it's transformed into something or ideally if if it's a good initiation is transformed into something really good and really powerful and really liberating so you know all of these initiations are about dying and being reborn essentially so the fear of death is a is a big aspect of that and that is definitely something that can be explored in the dream state because you know i remember when i was a kid and probably friday the 13th and freddy krueger influenced this somewhat there was this idea that if you died in a dream you'd die in real life Uh and uh I used to be really scared of dying in a dream for that reason. And then one time I remember thinking, no, I don't care. Let's just see what happens. And it was really, it was an amazing. And I had that experience of that inner alchemy thing happen of like abject terror transformed to like release and freedom and happiness. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've died in dreams several times and it's always just an unusual, it's like a die that I'm looking at my dead body and I'm, you know, still watching everything unfolding and it's like, okay, this is no big deal that body died that vehicle and then you just enter into another dream yeah, I, think, uh, I think that my one my biggest things about lucid dreaming when I was a kid because I was aware of the fact you know I absolutely loved it and my biggest my biggest ideas around it was a I wanted to in, invent a machine that could record my dreams so I could watch them like a film and I could be a dream film director and make lots of other people watch them as well and uh, the other one was that I would be able to transcend death because if I could maintain consciousness in the dream state, then that could probably flow into the dying state as well. And I watched that film. What's it called? The dark side of the force is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. Brainstorm. And that, that was a huge influence on me, Brainstorm. Have you ever seen it? I can't remember what act, it's not, it might be Donald Sutherland, I can't remember. What the actor, uh, the, the story is that a scientist is working on a machine to record your memories. And then she's a chain smoker. So she dies while she's on the machine and her moment of death is recorded. And it was a oh, mind blowing film for me when I was a kid. I absolutely loved it. And I think that was one of those things that, was a big influence in my particular weird areas of interest. Hmm. You know, that's interesting. I, I'll have to check that out. That kind of reminds me of another film, which is pretty amazing called until the end of the, until the end of the world. And I think the original version of the film was something like 12 hours long. Um, but in the film, there is a, there is a machine that is developed to record dreams and so it's mm. kind of interesting, this idea of recording dreams. And I, I actually know there's some labs that are working on that right now. Yeah, I've been talking to a researcher in California. I think he's still in California, called Daniel Aldis. Um, and I got in contact with him because I had a dream. I had a dream that I was going to make a film that was called The Advanced Theory of Deep Sleep. And it was very specific. And I'd read something about him working on these dream recording devices. But the thing that really stuck in my mind was he was talking about um, recording dream speech by uh, using electromyography to record micro movements in the voice box. So basically when you talk in a dream, 
you're making sub-vocal voice box movements that if they can get sufficient, like good enough resolution of those movements, they'd be able to uh, tell you what you were saying because the movements would match your actual speech. It's really amazing. So I, I read it and it was one of those things that I read a lot about dreams. It was one of the things that I thought, wow, that really is amazing. I never thought that is, I've never thought about that before. So I was really like um, inspired by it. And that night I had a lucid dream and I was like, oh, I'm going to remember that and I'm going to try it out. And I was standing in Times Square for some reason and I was just going, this is amazing. This is it. And I could hear my voice box like making these like teeny tiny little micro movements. And I remember thinking, wow, that is so true. And then it also got me to thinking about, you know, like in a dream when uh, people classically talk about the nightmare when they scream and nothing comes out, but you do get this like, little noise and that is because your voice box actually is doing teeny tiny little micro screams that you're physically aware of to some degree but obviously won't express themselves as proper big screams that's cool but yeah so we, yeah it's also doing like dream recording there's already been some studies into recording actual visual dream content which i don't know if you've seen those studies in japan where they basically hook participants up to youtube and show them hours and hours of different kinds of footage and then later on when they're dreaming, they do kind of reverse uh, engineering on it so that uh, their brain waves can show you using the YouTube footage as data what sort of thing they were dreaming about. Wow. And they're very blurry and indistinct, but I did watch one uh, video of it. And what's nice about it is it does capture that dream speed and the morphing and the weirdness of dreams. It has like a weird dream timing to wow. it. And it's vague, like you'll see a, you know, cause there'll be bits in the dream where there's a talking head. So there'll be like a news reporter, but it's all like blurry and it looks great. But, um, you know, obviously it's not high definition, actual, your actual yeah. dream, but it gives pe it gives people a sense of the speed and the flow and the morphing nature of their dream. Wow. That's cool. I'm going to look that up. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, it, you know, the develop. I've been talking just more in my personal conversations a lot lately about the development of um, virtual reality. Because back in the '90s, it was on. It, they were talking about it all the time. It was like, especially mid to late '90s, virtual reality, virtual reality. Then after 2000, they you really heard nothing about it for a long time. And I always said, well, they're going to bring it back because they've been working on it this whole time and they're going to interface it with the internet. And eventually further down the road, there's going to be a synthesis with holographic projection technology. And there's going to mm -hmm. be this immersive environment, which is, vir you know, very virtual. Think of how people do the online gaming. You know, I don't do that, but it seems like all these people everywhere are all connected to one game. So think of that from a magician's perspective. You know, all these people are focusing on this exact same thing at the exact same time. And they're interacting within this imaginal world that, they, that, that they've created. All the psychic energy being poured into this exact same focus at the exact same moment. Well, if the plans go as, as they seem to be headed... What's in effect? What in effect will probably happen is the creation of an artificial astral plane. Mm, I wonder. Yeah, I mean, I think I tried to have a meeting in Second Life the other day. I've never done Second Life <laughs> before, and I, I have a little group that we do Zoom meetings together, and they're like, "Let's try and do it in Second Life." <laughs> and you can do Second Life on a virtual reality headset. So, 
you know, that's going to be a well-populated space. And I think you're right. I mean, certainly energetically, it's a plane of experience that's already there. So, I mean, that is definitely already there, isn't it? And the internet is there yeah. as a plane of our creation, really. So I wonder if we can uh, create more of a spiritual dimension by focused attention with a sufficient amount of people. We probably can. Do you ever watch a wild, wild country? No, no. Oh, it was a really good uh, Netflix documentary about um, uh, Osho, the Osho. Oh, I've been meaning to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. And there was an interesting bit where someone was talking about the reasons why he made everyone wear red. And it was about creating a red vibration in a sufficient concentration to change the vibration of the area and the space. And I can see that like there's, there's something to be said for thinking in those sorts of vibratory uh, terms, I think, you know, well, and I think moving in as, as we're in the 21st century and we're going to all going to be here for a while, unless we've are fortunate enough to be able to, um, you know, discarnate ourselves permanently. Um, magicians tend to be, caught in an archaic mindset. And I think for good reason. I mean, if you go back about 2000 years ago, the archetypes are very much present here. So you could access them in a way that you really can't to the same degree nowadays. But I think moving forward with this technology, magicians have to be thinking about the things we're talking about moving forward, because the people who understand the tremendous importance of magic theurgy, things like this, those are the people that are going to be able to help the the most other human beings access spiritual dimensions of existence with this incursion of technology, with this incursion of technology that can go in two directions. It can either be something that liberates us or it can become a psychic prison of illusions. And I think it's almost it's almost our responsibility, each of us in some way, and I see you doing this, to consider the implications of, of that. How can we create doorways within the illusion to the real inner mm. reality? I, mean, I want to work on some like sleep hypnosis virtual reality projects because, you know, any, any route into that direct experience I think is valid. And, you know, you can, you can, the, the importance of religion and spirituality is really the essence and the direct experience of it, like the, the gnosis. And that's a big part of what we're doing with the seventh ray is trying to use all of the tools and the information that we know about why these rituals and these ideas are effective from a sort of practical, scientific and spiritual way and, and just try to distill them into their most important elements because they can be effective whatever religion or spiritual message is overlaid over the top of them. Like meditation is effective. It doesn't matter whether you're meditating to a particular God. The act of meditation is a pure, real, direct thing that people can experience. And I think technology already is doing that. Um, you know, you have apps for meditation and people are more people are probably learning how to meditate because of the um, the technological addiction that's causing people anxiety and upset. They're actually being drawn to meditation through the difficulty that they've experienced being out of a meditative state. So, you know, I think the most 
fantastic thing we could do for humanity would be to make sure all children learn how to meditate I think and the and I think there's power in numbers as well the more people that are doing it the more the more the higher the vibration of the uh, consciousness of the planet becomes like you do become less stressed less aggressive more conscious of your actions and the implications of your actions and it's the most valuable tool that could be taught to children I think so I hope that this little um, uh, corona drama does help people recognise the need for self-care because that seems to be something that's taken a massive backseat for a lot of people for a really long time. Have you thought about doing a uh, YouTube uh, video for your kids' program on meditation? Um, I'm pro- I might do it under the guise of something to do with Egypt. I'm sure I did like a little cloth meditation. I love that. Yeah. Recently. Yeah. And, uh, one of the, I'm trying to do, um, projects that can have, that have an aspect of mindfulness in my favorite one that I did myself was I did an Osiris seed bomb. That was cool. And I loved doing that. And today I just went to have a look at my little sunflower cause I don't really have a garden. I've just got a little courtyard. And so I made my Osiris seed bomb and I took it to the, the council flower bed opposite where I live and planted that. And hilariously, I didn't do it on purpose, but right where the erect penis should be, there's a massive sunflower <laughs> coming up. And I think that that was quite perfect. magical. That's perfect. That's, That's a perfect awesome. magical indication of, of isn't know, it? Yeah. Isn't it? So let's talk about some of your other projects. We talked about the seventh ray, which before we move on to the other projects, I want to hear where, where is that at exactly? Like how far along are you? Uh, I just heard from Carl the other day, actually. And we've got, we got invited to do loads of festivals this year, but they're all yeah, off. Basically. Yeah. So we've got a load of new gear now. So we're going to work on a better um, version of it anyway. Okay. So, so we have, we've, we've um, showcased it already. I had a, it has scenes in it and stuff, but it hasn't been made available to the public. We've just had like little festival okay. excursions for so it. So it's still evolving. And, yeah, it's still evolving. And, um, and yeah, that's about it really. So we've got a load of new gear and we're just going to do like a, an upgrade. Okay. And Janice mentioned the, the kids thing you have on YouTube, the Egyptomaniacs, which is a really fun yeah. little show that you have going on. So can you talk for a minute about that and what the thought process behind that is? I can't remember how it's, I mean, I've always really, really loved ancient Egypt and um, I've, I collected some books to start learning hieroglyphs and I just happened across this one book that made learning hieroglyphs seem like the easiest thing on the world in the world. It was just, it was just kind of weird. It's almost like a comic book, but I really, you know, when you like grasp something, I sort of just read it and I was like, oh my God, I, I get it. I get how the system works. And once you, you kind of get past that, it makes it easier to learn. And then I developed like a real love for writing them and recognized, you know, I, I understood or I'd read about the magical powers of hieroglyphs and the ideas of Medunedja and the idea of, um, the, the symbols being used as manifestation tools, essentially, and magic. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually using a scribal pen and using ink to draw hieroglyphs, you feel like you are, you're doing magic all the time. It's amazing. So I got really into that. And um, 
the the Egyptian history and the mythological stories. There's so much there. And um, I read somewhere that one of the best ways to learn anything is to teach other people about it. And so I thought I could, if I teach kids, I won't feel too much like <laughs> under scrutiny, <laughs> but I'll learn myself and it will be easier for me to like really integrate that knowledge. And it has worked brilliantly because you have to like research uh-huh. stuff and you have to like really familiarize yourself with the subject and understand the concept of the subject. So, you know, there's lots of things that I knew little bits about, but it's, a, you know, it's really helped me to kind of get into learning about ancient Egypt as a sort of like practical day to day, like every day I read something about it basically. And every day I apply that knowledge into some little project that I do. So, so yeah. And and kids absolutely love ancient Egypt. So it started Mm -hmm. off, I was doing like these actual physical workshops and I really like like arts and crafts and all that kind of stuff as well. And uh, so we did, what did we do? We did, we made like little scarab beetles. Mm -hmm. So like you were saying about the layers, there's so many layers to the meaning of the scarab beetle. There's the, meaning of the triliteral hieroglyphic sign Kepler and then there's the symbolic meaning of the scarab and then there's the scarab amulet that people will place over the heart of the mummies and and, you know it's got so many different layers of meaning um so you can use all of that in the workshops and then we did like mummification and the mummification process and um and I just got really into it and kids were super into it so I thought I'd make the videos so every episode we just do one little task about um, Egypt. But what I quite like is sneaking in some of the magic and religion aspects of it because you don't really get that so much in museums Mm -hmm. or on other Egyptian-themed kids' activities. It's more just about what they look like arts and crafts-wise. And, um, you know, I did like a a Thoth invocation (laughs) in one of them. And, you know, the Osiris seed bombs, stuff like that. Like that's part of the mysteries of Osiris making those seed bombs. So, you know, I love, I love that aspect to it. And I, I, I like to encourage that kind of spiritual thinking about those kinds of activities as well, because in museums it's all presented in quite a dry way. And there's a great um, kids TV show here called Horrible Histories but they always like make fun of ancient cultures, beliefs in weird or stupid things. And there's often, you know, if not grains of truth, like massive chunks of truth in a lot of those beliefs, or there are more complex reasons as to why some of those beliefs may have been effective. So I I always, that always used to irk me slightly because it's really funny, but um, they do often uh, not fully explain why ancient cultures believed what seems to us like we really weird stuff yeah i love the arts and crafts aspect you made uh best at sock puppets uh you mentioned the osiris seed bombs which i really really like that uh what else gingerbread onk so yeah it's really fun i love the gingerbread onk as well because that works on so many yeah. layers because you eat life when you eat it like i love all of that aspect to it and then you only need to learn a few of the symbols really from the ancient Egyptian system to go into a museum and be like, oh, I get mm-hmm. what that means now. I get the concept behind that. I mean, one of the great things that happened for me was, you know, I've always loved it, but I did a tour with my friend um, Lee Gerard Barlow, who offers these like weird off-piste British museum tours of the Egyptian gallery, where he talks about the magic and spirituality of Egyptian religion. And 
he at that time anyway couldn't read hieroglyphs but he was pointing out some of the symbols and even since then I've been able to go in and kind of get the gist of the symbols and what certain stelae or whatever relate to because it's such a symbolic and um, spiritual language you know and like the Greeks the gods are represented with their symbols so you can tell who they are once you know what those symbols represent. And you also have the Explorers Club, which we talked about briefly at the beginning. So that's just something that you do in your local area uh, at a local pub, I think, near near where yeah. you're at. I started it off because um, I didn't go to university. And uh, after I had my daughter, I was like, oh, maybe I should go to university and maybe I would like study anthropology or something. I don't know. But I didn't have any money. So I started to bunk into the University of Sussex and just sneak into lectures and uh, I ended up going to loads of neuroscience lectures and they were really dry and boring which made me decide I definitely didn't want to go to university so um, I asked I saw like later on I saw one of the same lecturers I'd seen giving a talk at a pub and he was much more relaxed and it was much more interesting and the audience were more engaged and he was much more like off record telling us what he really Mm -hmm. thought and um, so I said oh if I give you a hundred quid will you come and do it at my house and he's like yeah right and then I realized, because I was, I was saying before, I used to promote a lot of bands and do a lot of um, gig promotion and stuff like that. And I realized that getting academics to come for an event was a lot easier than organizing a band. So I just started doing that. And then as my kind of interests, I've got so many different interests in so many different areas, like no particular degree would ever have been really like, I would never have been able to stick at it. So with doing my explorers club it's like i've got this weird bespoke education on all sorts of extremely niche topics usually like we've had everything from like sex robots um to like this weekend we've got space weekend so we were talking about the starlink satellites and then tomorrow we've got one about how you actually leave the planet like the technology and the the kind of psychological aspects of actually going off planet uh so yeah like we've covered so many different subjects it's been really great and it's nice because there's a little band of loyal people that come to nearly every single one so we've all ended up with these weird little um uh like phrases that we've picked up from the speakers like stuff we've learned it's like really niche we've got loads of in jokes and yeah it's great that's cool yeah that's kind of what we do here we don't even know if anyone's listening to these we just find people that (laughs) that we want to talk to and actually like from doing the explorers club started in about 2012 i've made so many friends with the people that have come to give talks and like carl is one of the guys that i invited and we're now doing projects together anthony peak i do projects with anthony peak because they're subjects i'm really into like i'm i managed to get myself into like all sorts of weird projects all the time so the explorers club has been absolutely like life-changing as far as that's concerned really good i feel like we could just continue this conversation all day but we should probably (laughs) wrap for time so that um you know people are able to listen in one sitting i think but i wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your ideas with us and for discussing these intriguing topics so please accept our gratitude for the conversation and the appearance and um we definitely support everything you're doing 150 percent. oh thank you thank you so much for having me it was great and um, where can people find you? Uh, I, I have like one website with all of my various odd jobs on, which is um, 
themysteries.org. And then because of the because of the corona situation, all of my explorers clubs are are currently being held in Zoom meetings. So anyone can watch those wherever they are. They're all free. And they can and people can find these meetings through themysteries.org. Yeah, website, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yep. Thank you again, Sarah. It was really wonderful to meet you and talk with you. And uh, good luck with all your projects. Thank you very much. Well, it's lovely to meet you both virtually. Okay, we want to give a big thank you to Sarah Janes for appearing on the show. It was an excellent conversation, and I certainly was engrossed by it and intrigued by the discussions of, you know, dream magic and Asclepius and all kinds of other stimulating topics we ended up diverging and then reconverging back into. Um, Definitely felt that this was a very intelligent guest, creative person in a huge way. Um, I love what she's doing with kids too, with the Egyptomaniacs and the Explorers Club. Sounds like so much fun. She is doing that on Zoom too. Uh, All in all, I really am happy that we did this interview and I certainly hope that we can boost the signal for her and uh, help her to become more well-known and get more attention because I think what she's doing is fresh and inspiring and educational too yeah i think you said it you nailed it um she brings a a fresh new kind of energy to what is sometimes kind of a stale stagnant landscape i mean we've been in this occult world for a while and it's kind of the same stuff over and over again so yeah what i liked about hers is that it's got kind of a, a fun fresh approach She's got good energy. Uh, she's sincerely passionate about these things, and it shows. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun, and I hope people follow up with uh, her and, and watch what she's doing in the future. It's very fresh. It's very inspiring. You know, it's we're not dealing with somebody looking at things from a super dry academic perspective, which I personally appreciate, but for some people can be off-putting. But on the other hand, we're not dealing with a uh, quote-unquote professional magician whose every word is crafted around selling something. It's really good. I'm really glad we did it. And I'm really grateful to her for coming on. Um, I just want to give her a shout out, let people know about it. Please check her out. And also, you know, this is just part of our ongoing uh, focus, which is we care about having more female voices on our show. We want to boost the female signal in esotericism, mysticism, occultism. We want to have people hear the voices of women because these are fields that frequently are kind of hypersaturated with uh, masculinity. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of male voices out there on the occult all the time. And I think the female approach to magic, mysticism, esotericism is deeply valuable. Um, women bring things to the table that enrich the conversation that 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 I believe men can't always contribute either, and so we have an ongoing focus of uh, bringing um, interesting and talented women in the field onto our show. Agreed. So thank you again, Sarah. Now I think it's time that we move into our book review segment, and this one you're going to handle. So it's all you. So I want to discuss 
a um, book by an author who I love. His name is Willy Schroeder. I probably said that wrong. I tried to say it right. Willy Schroeder. I probably said that wrong. Anyway, <laughs> he was a German author. I believe he's passed away now, but he has a few books in English. He has a copious amount of writing in the German language. And since our base is primarily interested in um, magic and esotericism, I picked one of his books specifically focused on that. It is called Commentaries on the Occult Philosophy of Agrippa. So what uh, Willie would do was he, in his books, he would compile a copious amount of sources uh, and references to discuss all kinds of interesting topics, just ranging through ceremonial magic, natural medicine, magnetism, hypnotism, occultism, um, Rosicrucianism is a big one. In this one, he specifically discusses Agrippa's books and includes references from other authors, discussions of the dynamics of different processes employed by Agrippa. Some examples um, are, for instance, he has a, he has a section on on the three books, or you could say the I'm not I don't think the fourth book is in here, just the three books. So. On the first book on natural magic, he goes through many topics that Agrippa discusses, like handling red-hot iron unharmed, objects as conveyors of character traits, the resurrection bone, um, magic lamps, mind control. Uh, In the second book on celestial magic, he discusses magic lanterns, the moon and its magical associations, the music of inanimate nature. And on the third book, some examples of the topics he covers, fire magic, invocation of saints preferred to invocation of angels, interesting, prophetic dreams, mummifying caves, prayer, promoting plant growth, and more. And what's interesting here is that he does not only just include uh, quotations, but he examines the character of the quotations he produces from a variety of different authors, both ancient and modern, to explicate uh, and open up and unfold these topics by Agrippa. So here's an example he quotes on the chapter uh, 26 from book one, discussing a homunculus. He says, as a supplement to this, we would refer to the Scottish physician, Dr. William Maxwell, the precursor of Dr. Franz Anton Mesmer and friend of the English defender of the Rosicrucians, Dr. Robert Flood. Maxwell took human blood, which the routine bloodletting of his day made so freely available, and allowed this to ferment, but he kept secret the critically important fermentation time. This is the very special juice. Put it under a hen to incubate. After the expiry of a certain time, you will find an anthropoid mass which, with which you can perform many wonders, and also a surrounding oil or fluid. Many wonders can be performed by means of the blood, if only you know how to use it correctly, but I prefer to pass them over in silence. Nevertheless, if you fully understand what has been said, and if you diligently study nature, you will be able to obtain the knowledge yourself. An intimation of what wonders may be expected from the use of blood is to be found in the so-called power of sympathy. 
And then, of course, he gives copious actual references in the footnotes to what he is quoting. <clears throat> All of his writings uh, sort of follow this pattern, and so they are immensely useful references for the study of these subjects because they not only include his own insights, but they include quotations from some authors, in some cases, who aren't even in print in English. Um, I think his books are more useful for practical occultists rather than theoretical occultists uh, because they really, if you read them with a critical eye, they lead you toward um, techniques and um, approaches to ex occult experiments and uh, processes by which people may affect change in the interior and exterior world. So, um, as part of the reference library of a practicing uh, magician or esotericist, I definitely re re recommend this book uh, as an excellent supplement to Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy. Uh, as a final note, uh, <clears throat> Mr. Schroeter frequently refers to a German uh, Rosicrucian occultist named G.W. Surya. Um, his references to this man and his ideas have made me rather intrigued with Mr. Surya. Uh, unfortunately, though, again, there is nothing in English that I have been able to find on him. If any of our listeners are aware of any English translations of Surya, please let us know. And that concludes the book review. And what's the title? Commentaries on the Occult Philosophy of Agrippa. Okay, cool. That sounds really intriguing, and uh, I don't really need any more books to add to my Amazon list, but I just added it, so <laughs> It's worth your time. And it's, it's not a thick book, but at the same time, with his books, you really need to take your time reading them because there is so much information. I mean, again, it's more for people who actually do magic, I think, who are interested in the doing rather than the reading or the thinking. So I guess you're out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, so hope people enjoy that. Cool. All right. I think that's a wrap for this episode. You can find us on YouTube, on Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Please give us a review, a rating that helps us out. Um, like, share, and subscribe. Yep, what he said. And uh, I think that's it, unless you have anything else. Uh, no, just wanted to um, give a shout out to all of our past guests and to everybody who is um, dealing with this unusual scenario in the world. Um, you know, stay cool. And to our practitioners who listen to the show, this is the time to put your practice to action. This is the time to use everything you've studied and been taught. Um, you know, this is the time. So, you know, yes, people, it's okay to just feel like you don't want to do anything or like you want to relax or whatever because of the stress and anxiety. I get it, believe me. But for the initiates, for the magicians, for the sorcerers, for the occultists, for the witches, um, for the alchemists out there who are listening to the show, you and I both know this is what we're trained for. This is what we train for times like this. And so what better time to use our skills and insights for the betterment of other beings and also for our own self-development. So please try and keep that in mind. Stay safe, stay focused, and um, um, may all beings benefit from what we have presented today. And as usual, we dedicate this to the great God, Hermes Thoth, 
Lord of Wisdom, Master of Intelligence, Celestial Messenger, Psychopomp, and Scribe. Okay, thank you for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Yeah.